Amen. Thank you, piano ladies. We appreciate it so much. This uh, little framed piece up here, this is a manuscript from the Tom, second edition of the Thomas Matthew Bible. I'm going to talk about it in a few minutes this morning. This is not the oldest manuscript page I've got, but it's the, the first old one that I've got, and it's only 470 years old. So if you'd like to see that later, uh, that's a page from the book of Jeremiah out of a Bible printed in England a long, long time ago, 470 years ago. Well, that was the second edition. This is a reproduction of the first edition of the Thomas Matthew Bible. And I've talked about this before. Um, I know that you can't remember all that kind of stuff, but um, John Rogers was an amazing guy. And you're going to meet him someday in heaven. And John Rogers just sounds like John Doe or, you know, just the next guy. And when you meet him, I want you to know who he is and be excited to see him. Oh, you're John Rogers, the John Rogers. And he'll be excited that somebody from the 21st century in Dublin, Georgia, actually knew who he was. John Rogers was an understudy of the great William Tyndall, who's probably the greatest Englishman ever and the great Bible translator. And we're going to talk this morning a little bit about him. But as he was working and after he died, his work was picked up by Miles Coverdale and John Rogers, two remarkable men, brilliant men who could translate, who could publish, who could uh, endure the persecution of what it takes to get the Bible into the hands of the people. And John Rogers was that guy. And after Tyndall was dead, and after Miles Coverdale had finished Tyndale's Old Testament, to put it with his New Testament, John Rogers got both of those things together, printed this, sent it to Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Church of England, sent it to him uh, just to say, what do you think? And Cranmer took it to Thomas Cromwell, who was running the country for Henry VIII. He was like, to call him the Secretary of State would be too small of a title, really was running the country for the king. Both Cranmer and Cromwell were secret evangelicals. You didn't talk about that kind of thing because it, it could and it did cost their lives. But they were very pro-Bible and very excited about what their hero, William Tyndall, had done. And they wanted to keep it going. And so he took that. Cromwell took it to the king of England, Henry VIII, crazy Henry VIII. He was sort of like Donald Trump, only times 10. He was just a uh, uh, very unique individual. And Cromwell carefully says, uh, sir, what do you think about this? And the king, who's changing his mind about all kinds of things, like, looks good. Print it. Put it in all the churches. This is the guy who wanted Tyndale dead and didn't want any English Bibles. Print it. Put it in all the churches. All the churches. A 180 in response to the prayer of William Tyndale as he was dying in the flames in Europe, away from his native England, because he translated the Bible. That was John Rogers. Uh, he would later die for the same cause at a place I'm going to tell you about a little later. We're coming this morning. We got a short passage. You know what they say about a short passage? Short passage, long message. Maybe not. Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. I titled it, The Breaking of the Fifth Seal or those who died 
for God's word. And a number of people did. And we dare not forget the price that they laid down for us to have our Bibles this morning on the screen and in our hands and in our pews and in our cars and everywhere. We are so privileged with the word of God. If you were to look at the title page, I thought about putting it on the screen, but if I did, you probably wouldn't be able to to make it out anyhow. But this is the title page to the first edition of John Rogers Bible. It's got some red ink to it, uh, mostly black and white. And it's a lot of line art, which you would cut into a block of wood. I don't know how they did it. You had to have a perfectly flat piece of wood and then etch a picture into it that could be inked and pressed onto paper. The skill that it took to do that at the level of detail, you're welcome to look at it later, is remarkable. Well, the cover title page to John Rogers first, it's called the Thomas Matthew Bible. He took two apostles' names, two of Jesus' disciples, and made up this name, Thomas Matthew, and put it on there instead of the John Rogers Bible, which was pretty good. That bought him 20 years or so. Uh, by not having his name initially tied to the cause. But it didn't stay a a secret for very long. But in this fine detail of all this writing, let me just describe it for you. At the bottom of the page, there's a poor beggar. And he's obviously destitute and in terrible shape. And there are two men talking to him. And they're dressed reasonably well. Not, Not fancy, but okay. And they're both talking. I think it's taken from the third chapter of Acts. There are all these biblical stories around the perimeter of the piece of paper. And uh, the, the character at the bottom is begging and the two men with him are pointing in the same direction. So it's probably Acts 3 and Peter and John at the temple and the man begging and they say, remember Peter's words, that gold and silver we don't have, but what we do have we give you. Rise in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and he did. It's a great day at the temple. And it's probably a depiction of that. But in this artwork and Roger's Bible, they're pointing and over on the right hand side of the page, halfway up is Jesus on the cross. So it's Peter and John telling the beggar who represents you and me, there's the answer. Not the money we might have in our pockets, not our gold and silver. That's the answer. That's the solution. Now, at the base of the cross in that picture is a lamb. And the lamb beside the cross is carrying a little cross that's got a banner on it. And we're reminded of the role of the lamb. The central character to the book of Revelation. Now, if you haven't been with us, uh, here's the, the quick, quick outline of Revelation up to this point. Chapter one's the introductory chapter, chapters two and three, letters to seven churches, seven different kinds of churches. There's an application that rolls out of each of those letters for us today to learn from. And then in chapters four and five, we've already looked at were those glorious days of worship, that, those moments of worship around the throne in heaven with God on his throne in the middle and the four living beings, whatever they were around the throne and the 24 elders around that. And there's a dilemma in heaven. And John, we saw last week, started crying because he knows where things are supposed to go and what God has in mind. And it's it's not happening because it's sealed up in the book and nobody's worthy. Not 
powerful. But nobody's worthy to break the seals of that book. You imagine taking your Bible and uh, taking it in, into seven sections and, and wrapping it up and sealing it up where you can't read it. And John is weeping, we saw last week, because no one is worthy. And then the Lamb, the Lamb, the central character to Revelation, the Lamb stands and takes the book. And we saw last week when he took the book, they just fell down and worshiped. Because the mere taking of the book into hand was a signal, I've got it. I've got it. Now, somebody here today, this morning, maybe everybody here this morning has stuff that you're anxious about and worried about. And the message to you from Revelation might be, I got it. Jesus to you, I've got it. Now, it will take a while to break the seals and all this to unfold, but I've got it. I am sovereign. I am in control. And I will break the seals. Now, Wednesday night, we've been going through the seals. Uh, and uh, they're interesting, but uh, it's kind of hard to get a handle on some of them. But it's, it's, it's pretty uh, overwhelming. It's pretty scary. And you begin to look at the seals, and, and the first seal is a white horse, a man on a white horse. And when you read that at the beginning of chapter 6, it's a symbol of war. And it goes to the next seal and the lamb breaks the second seal and it's a rider on a red horse. And again, it's a symbol of war and it talks about massive war and all that goes with that. And then he breaks the third seal. It's a rider on a black horse. And you get this imagery or symbol of famine and they're bartering and the price of food has gone sky high in the example that's given there. And then the lamb breaks the fourth seal. You had a, a white horse, red horse, black horse. Now you have a, it's, it's hard to translate, an ashen or a pale horse. Some even call it a green horse. It's just it's a, a sickly looking kind of color to the fourth horse and the fourth horseman. And it's this picture of death that's sweeping across the planet. And that's the buildup that the Wednesday night people know all about. So you're catching up with the Wednesday nighters. But now we come to the fifth seal. And the lamb's going to break that seal and give us three more verses. That's what we want to focus on this morning. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Because of the word of God, and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So John's looking. John's just taking it all in like a really good movie, like a really important movie, uh, more like a good documentary. This is, he's, he's getting all the insight uh, that he needs to encourage his soul, and he's doing his best to convey that to the churches and to us through the book of Revelation. And so uh, the secrets of heaven are being revealed. That's why it's revelation. It's being revealed Things you ought to want to know. You might not want to know them, but you ought to want to know uh, what's going on in heaven and the backdrop to this. And the lamb breaks that seal. The lamb is our Jesus. And John says, I looked and I saw underneath the altar. Now, I don't know what that looked like. It, it might have looked kind of like this. And, and God is on his throne and, and there's an altar in front. And, and somehow out in front or underneath that, 
maybe not literally under it, but in the lower areas of the altar and the presence of God are souls. Now, we want to know, first of all, the souls are alive and the souls are awake and the souls are interactive. So forever, uh, let's park the doctrine of soul sleep. Some of the cults down through the years have held to that. Seventh-day Adventists, Adventist groups hold to soul sleep, which basically teaches when you die, um, it's not over, but it's over for now. And with the death of your body is sort of the death of your soul. And instead of being uh, raised, you're, you're almost just recreated by God. And they believe in an afterlife of the body and the soul. But uh, between the time of death and the second coming of Christ, there's just... Was well, you're like you're asleep. It's really more like you're just dead. You're just kind of out of the story. And that's called soul sleep in theology. Well, this verse is often used against that. This and other verses can be used to forever discard the doctrine of soul sleep. With all due respect, whatever that might be for the Adventist movement, that's not what the Bible teaches. These souls are alive and they're watching. And they're feeling and they're praying and they're worshiping. And they're around the altar of God in heaven. And when Jesus breaks the fifth seal, John sees those souls. I don't know if he knew any of them, but he sees he's able to understand and comprehend who they are. And he says it's the souls of the ones literally of the ones having been put to death. So these are not just dead folk or dead believers They are dead martyrs. These are people who have died because of who they were. He says they died for two reasons. First of all, because of the word of God or the Bible, their commitment to biblical truth has something to do with their death and because of the witness which they were having. Now, the uh, the word witness is the word from which uh, that comes from, in English, witness comes from martyr. A martyr was someone who bore witness. And death and witnessing were so identified with each other that that word becomes martyrdom in English, or people who die for their spiritual convictions. And so John says, I could see the souls of the people who died for the Bible and, and, and those that died because they had a consistent witness. Uh, the, the Greeks talk about a martus or marturos. Uh, that's a witness, but it also becomes a martyr. And it says they were having a witness. All of you have a witness. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have a witness. It may not be a very good one, but you've got a witness. And I hope your witness is a good witness to the watching world and those around you. And I hope that it's growing and getting stronger and you're not ashamed to bear witness to Christ. Now, the the way John records it here, uh, for our understanding, he says, because of the witness they were having. And it's sort of a, to not get too ticky about it. They were having that kind of witness. That means this was the pattern of their lives. They didn't just have a good day. Uh, They didn't just uh, acknowledge their faith before they died. They were having that kind of witness. These were the real deal. These were the, the people who really lived for Jesus. And they have died. They've been 
they're not just dead, they have been put to death because of their commitment to the Word of God, their commitment to the Scriptures. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, imagine that. Imagine John just trying to take that in. John, uh, John, by the time he's putting these words on paper, his buddies are gone. He knew the Apostle Paul uh, from firsthand experience, but Peter was his buddy. They're both dead for their commitment to the Word of God. They died 30 years before, roughly. Who knows exactly? And maybe he sees them before the altar. He says, they have died because of their commitment to the Word of God. I wonder where we are this morning. I mean, is is the Bible just a nice inspirational book for every now and then? Would, Would you lay down your life for the Word of God? If push came to shove and it was choosing between this life and God's word and God's truth, where would you come down? These are the ones who said, we're with Jesus, whatever it cost us, even our lives, even a torturous death. We're with Jesus. We're with the word of God. And in heaven, through this revelation, John sees them. And they're going to speak up. It says in verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember I was talking about John knew where all this was going. When he's weeping, uh, back in chapter 5, verse 4, he's not weeping because he doesn't think this is going to work out well. He knows the end of the story. John knew Jesus firsthand better than anybody. And John was at the cross and John was at the empty tomb and he saw the resurrected Jesus and he saw Jesus ascend into heaven. John knows all of the, he is the greatest theologian ever. So it's not a knowledge thing, it's an emotional thing. And I want to suggest to you that what the martyrs say here in heaven is like that. They're not, they committed to the word of God way back. And they're not second guessing, they're before, they can see God in heaven. So they're not second guessing their theology or wondering if it's true or anything like that. They are caught up in the the huge emotion of this experience. The New American says, How long, O Lord, holy and true? It's Lord, the one being holy and true. Sort of a double or triple naming of God. Your God is the one who is holy. Don't ever forget that. Your God is the one who is true, who's uniquely and profoundly true. O Lord, holy and true one. How long will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And the, the depravity of the human race is going on. These people have laid down their lives for the cause of Christ. They're in heaven now. They're, they're blessed. It's good. But they're kind of looking back and saying, they know that there is a day of judgment coming. And they're saying, Lord, you're going to refrain from judgment and avenging our blood literally until when? Until when? When does this come together? When will we see the the conclusion, the consummation of all this uh, drama? When will it come, Lord? Oh, Lord. they're, They're crying out his name. Oh, Lord. Holy and true one. When are you gonna do what you said you were gonna do? You might be here this morning and you believe everything you're supposed to believe. But you might be dealing with something in your life and you might be crying out with the martyrs, 
How long, Lord? How much longer is it going to go until you fulfill all those promises that you've made to me? There's a yearning, even after they've left this life and they're in the presence of God, there's a yearning to see God's agenda come to pass, God's plan come to pass. And they're crying out, asking for the time. Some of these, if they were the apostles that were on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, could remember the day that they asked him about the temple. When's it going to happen, Lord? When is all this going to fall? Uh, and he said, it's not for you to know the times and the ages. Not yet. You're going to just do what you're supposed to do and be what you're supposed to be and wait on God's awesome timing. It will be perfect when he does it. Now, some people are troubled by verse 10 because these folk that have already gone to the presence of God are sort of calling for revenge. And so, well, you know, we look in the Bible and, and Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Shouldn't they be like Jesus? You come to Acts 7 and martyr uh, Stephen is crying out in prayer to God, asking the Lord to forgive those that are throwing rocks at him and, and taking his life. He says, shouldn't we be more like Stephen? What's, what's wrong with these folks in heaven? They are not, uh, they're not what they meant appear at first glance to be. They are in agreement with God's plan. They're just saying, Lord, we treasure, we value what you're doing. We just want to see it happen. We want to see you bring it all together under the Lordship of Christ. That's what we're crying for. That's what we're praying for. So there's nothing wrong or sinful in their attitude. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer. Here's your robe. It's what we wear up here. You put on your white robe, which is a symbol of what Christ has done for them. You, you wear this and you rest for a little while longer. Now, probably everybody here has somebody on the other side. Somebody who lived here and passed and Christian faith. And you know that they've gone on to the presence of the Lord and they're in heaven uh, let me reassure you on the basis of Revelation 6 and the totality of the Bible, where they are is awesome. Paul wrote about it and he said it is very much better. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, very much better, Paul said. And John here is describing it in Revelation. He says uh, they are invited to just relax about God's timing and rest. Rest in that. You know, the day that you die and you will die. I'm sorry, unless there's something I don't know about. But when you do uh, in Christ, you'll be immediately in his presence and it will be restful and blissful. It will be wonderful. It will be glorious. And if you have somebody special on the other side or somebody's on the other side, uh, you can be excited for them today. They are better off than you are. And they are resting in the amazing grace of God through Christ. He says, you're going to rest for a little while longer. A little while longer when those words are spoken a couple of thousand years. This is going to go on. So just rest in that and, and become timeless like God is. You just kind of settle in on that knowing that God is in control. He says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren 
who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. That's the fifth seal. So uh, martyrs, rest, trust, enjoy your bliss in heaven, knowing that there are more to come and they're going to join you. And when God is through doing all he wants to do down through human history, then it'll all come together. Now we're going to see in tonight's passage uh, a discussion of those who are coming out of the great tribulation. And the question is, is that all of church history or the years at the very end? But these people are coming out of church history and the presence of God. And it's good for them. It's awesome for them. And there's complete deliverance from all the persecutions and hardships of the past. And it is glorious. And yet they cry out for God to bring it to pass. Wrap it up. God, we want you to do what you ordained to do, but we hunger to see that. We get excited about all kinds of things. Something in our Christian hearts needs to hunger to see God punctuate his plan of the ages. And if you don't have something in your spirit that yearns to see God wrap it up, you're missing something and you need to get back into the word. And these martyrs under the throne around the altar of God are given that assurance. You have not, you have not died in vain. You are experienced blessing now, but your testimony continues on and there will be others. Now you and I, if we were God, we'd probably mess all that up because we, oh, there's some more. Well, we're not going to have any more martyrs now. Uh, we're we're going to shut this down right away. And, and that's not the message in script. Oh yeah, others are going to continue to die for the cause of Christ right on down to the end. And that may be a little unsettling to you. But there are people today dying for the cause of Christ in ways that in our cushy American world, we, we don't quite comprehend. But that's the promise. Now, John Rogers, uh, on my last trip, uh, went into London by myself uh, so I could go anywhere I wanted to. And I was going to go on another pilgrimage to Smithfield. Uh, bought a little book a year ago with our group. Uh, on the testimony of the martyrs, the English martyrs. And it's got a whole chapter on Smithfield. So I went up the other day to Smithfield. I'd been there a couple of times before. Went back up there, but I started at St. Paul's Cathedral and right out St. Paul's. I took a picture. My pictures just really were very disappointing. My camera is just really not real cool and uh, it didn't turn out too well. But I took a picture and there's a circle in the pavement just northeast of St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's called, it just says, this is where Paul's cross was, which was an outdoor pulpit where they preached outside the cathedral and hundreds of people would gather. And the king or queen could sit up on an altar rail that was attached to the outside of the cathedral and listen to the preacher preach and crowds would gather. And over north of the cathedral was Printer's Row, Publisher's Row, uh, where literature was uh, produced. And there at that outdoor pulpit, they took, this is William Tyndale's first edition. This is not the real one. This is not a real first edition, or you and I would have one whale of a museum here in Dublin. Uh, but this is a reproduction. That's the size it was. And it came across the English Channel. And the Bishop of London, supposed spiritual leader of the city of London, said, 
round them all up, buy them if you have to, stack them up, take them to Paul's cross, and we're going to have a book burning. And they did. And they burned all but two of these. And one is in the British Library and the other is the greatest treasure in St. Paul's Cathedral today. Just a few feet from where they burned those Bibles. John Rogers and the good years after Henry VIII, there were six good years when his son ruled, uh, he preached at St. Paul's Cross or inside the Cathedral of St. Paul's every afternoon, Reformation theology, teaching the people the Bible. And they came in massive numbers and were very excited. And then Edward died. Oh, no. And, and Mary, his sister, half-sister, replaced him. And she ruled for five years. And several hundred people died because of her uh, obsessive hatred for the evangelical reform cause. And the first martyr of that chapter was John Rogers. His church was about two blocks northwest of St. Paul's Cathedral called St. Sepulchre, named for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. We, we tried to go there on our trip last year and our guide wasted a lot of time. And when we got there, the church was closed and we didn't go to Smithfield. So you missed it. Smithfield is two blocks north of his church. So they, they took him and they put him in prison across the street from his church. And then they took him out and they marched him two blocks north of his church to Smithfield to the place where Braveheart, William Wallace, had been killed years before, 300 years before. It was a martyr's field. There's a meat market there across the street that I went in the other day and tried to take some pictures and it was sort of closed down and someday that's going to become the Museum of London. They're going to get the meat market guys out of there and make that a museum. But it's right across the street from where hundreds of people died for the word of God. English folk that you're related to, most of you, died for the word of God because their Christian faith cost them something. Our Christian faith, at least in our minds, cost us virtually nothing. We give some money to it if we feel like it. And their Christian faith cost them everything that this world had to offer. Now, John, looking at the, the revelation, looks in on that and says, you know, I'd rather have, as George Beverly Shea used to say, I'd rather have Jesus than fortune or fame. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world has to offer and those people made that decision. John Rogers made that decision when he did the first edition of his Bible. It was extremely dangerous to do that. His hero mentor had already been burned at the stake when he submitted that to Cranmer. Through the glory years of freedom to preach at St. Paul's, that was exciting. But he knew when, when Edward died, that, those days were over. And it was extremely dangerous to do what he did. Imagine if I had to worry about being arrested and martyred every Sunday morning when I came in here. It's like, whoa, that's some job. And that was the reality of what they went through. You and I pay very little for our commitment to Christ by comparison to some of these people. And the souls of the martyrs are around in the book of Revelation. And the souls of the martyrs today are around the throne of God saying, Lord, How's your timing working out? Saying we got a few more nations to reach. Got a, a, another couple of thousand Bibles to translate. And then it will happen. But you will trust me. You will trust me completely and fully with everything. 
Now, I trust that we will have no martyrs here in our congregation. Uh, those days, hopefully, are past, for, at least for us. Uh, but there is that need to have that commitment where if the world changed beyond your imagination, you'd be still saying, I'd rather have Jesus than whatever. You become uh, spiritually bulletproof at that point. You're committed to Christ and, and the world can't touch you. These people in Revelation 6 had done that. The Smithfield martyrs had done that. And you and I can be wholeheartedly committed to Jesus even in our own time. Where's your commitment level this morning in terms of Jesus and the word of God and the testimony of your personal life? The message of John was these are the ones having been put to death because of the word of God and because of their consistent testimony. Well, let's bow together in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning that we are saved by your amazing grace. And when he wanted to ask you to help us live as though we truly comprehend that. We're grateful for your reaching love. We're grateful for the cross. We're grateful for the lamb that was slain. We're grateful for the lamb who breaks the seals. We're grateful for the lamb who has history in his hand. And the progressive plan of the ages is in his hands. Lord, help us to walk by faith. Lord, we want to not only know about that, we have our Bible studies and our commentaries on Revelation. We don't want to just know about it. We want to feel it, Lord, impress on our hearts the awesomeness of life and death and eternal life and the sovereignty of God. Thank you for being here. I pray for a room full of folks that need to hear a fresh touch from you for various reasons. Some in our church family are dealing with major health issues. Some are dealing with financial struggles. Some are dealing with marital issues. Lord, we want to hear from you in a fresh way. We want to look to the Lamb and know that our lives are in His hand. So we look to you in faith with thanksgiving and praise. And we pray this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.